Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Dude, Jules, mate, do you not, you're, not, you're not a stranger to these things, these microphones, so what's, no. what's going on? Tell me. No, I've been having a stab in the marketing world. Tell us what that means. Well, I've created a, um, uh, or founded a company called Tribe, and essentially uh, they're digital platforms, so it's a, um, a desktop platform and an app. And it connects brands with not only celebrity influencers, but citizen influencers, which are everyday Aussies that might have 5,000 followers or more. And um, we give them the opportunity to be able to collaborate and create sponsored posts because, as you can imagine, at the moment, um, there's an enormous uh, amount of audience that is really difficult to reach, especially in TV and radio. And um, they're now following um, these new type of power brokers, which are social media influencers. These so are what is an influencer? Social media influencers. These so are- what is an influencer? Tell us. So an influencer is those people um, within social media that have 5,000 followers or more. So that could be in Twitter, Instagram, or um, Facebook. Um, so in Twitter, you've got 27,000 followers, I think, <laughs> um, today. Uh, so I'm an influencer. You are an influencer. Can I make a buck out of it? Bloody oath. So <laughs> did you pay for that watch? Uh, this one I did, yes. Yeah. So how much was that? Uh, <laughs> a lot. So you don't have to answer that. It's white gold. Yeah. I so the point is, the point is here. All of us have a thousand brands that we endorse as a consumer, and there's yeah. no better endorsement that actually you paying money and you've paid a lot of money for that watch. You've chosen that out over thousands of watches around the world, and people trust your opinion. If you say, "I'll wear this watch because I love it," there's twenty seven thousand people on your Twitter following that go, "You know what? I trust his opinion," and that's worth something in the social space. And brands are really keen to have a more meaningful recommendation. This is not selling advertising. This is about hearing your genuine, authentic choices in life be shared in a way. And, you know, most people like Sophie Monk, you go through her feed, she spent years covered in brands and that's but, but hang on, Jules. Hang on. Yeah. Like when when, it, when someone a brand comes and pays you, it, yeah. it doesn't. It stops being authentic at that point. Bullshit. Right? Well, okay. Well, if I'm if I'm Nike and I got a pair of runners and I come yeah. to try and say, listen, I want a, a million eyeballs on a, a new pair of runners, yeah. and you go and you go and send those runners to I don't know Sophie Monk. Yeah. Say, listen, you know, you're going to get paid twenty grand for yep. for plugging these pair of runners. Yep. Is she really into the runners, or is the she point plug, is, or is she is she plugging them because she's getting the twenty k? No, because she's starting. the 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 thing about our app is the influencers choose the brands because the brands. Yep. If we've got a thousand, why would you go out and uh, recommend a brand that you don't use mm. when you've got brands you do use offering your money? And mm. it's a path of least okay. resistance. So you're not you, you're not incorporating new things into your life. You're nah. just you're getting paid for the stuff you already use. If you go through Soph's feed, you'll see a whole heap of brands that she's chosen and that yeah, okay. she loves. Right, okay. and so now it's she's not, getting paid for it, and it's not about yeah because yeah. Um, and they're not the brands aren't buying for your love; they're simply asking you for to, to mention it, and it's no different than everything we've seen. In fact, it's far more authentic 
than I love every, the passion, by the way. Than every <laughs> billboard along here you'll see with celebrity. We haven't <clears throat> created celebrity endorsement. What we're doing is we're now, rather than, you know, a big-ass brand knocking on the door of a celebrity and saying we're going to pay you to spruik our brand, it's now about those actual influencers themselves having access to endorsements from every brand. Mm. And and why would you choose a watch that you don't wear? I choose this because it's nice and big and I can read it because yeah. I have my glasses on. <laughs> like, where did you get all these – where do you get these ideas? You're a radio guys, jockey. Guys, what's White, going White, on? White Roy just accepted my friend request, by the way. Right. There we go. There we go. Influence. That's right. I reckon you could get three cents White for that Roy. T-shirt, White. Nick. White. Count it. Count it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Explain to people, how do they do this? How do they get into this 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 game like, well, or do something new? How do they do it? Um, well, get inspired. I well, yeah, easy to get inspired. It's doing the fucking work that's hard. Yeah, but people be inspired by you saying okay. it's, it can what, be done. What was the genesis of the idea? Was it? Did you cover the guys over in America, the influential um, no. company? Co? No, you know, no, The no. guys that put on the big event at Coachella and all that sort of no. stuff? No. So I've been working on this for about two and a half years. So I went from TV, got into radio, and from radio I went, shit, I, I don't enjoy just talking in the microphone because I'm visual. So then I started to um, invest my time into our Facebook page on Fifi and Jules, and it got the Facebook page up to the most engaged, brand page in the entire country out of every category. And then from there, people asked me to come out and speak, go to the big media agencies. So I started to consult on that. And then because of that, a lot of the brands were coming to Southern Cross Australia saying we want digital and social campaigns. And they said, well, we don't have anyone who knows how to talk that language, get mm. jewels. So all the brands were coming in and I was finding the process, the, the process was painful. So then I thought, all right, I'm going to work on that. So I spent two years working on the concept and also trying to do some radio. You pull back from working or you just kept your day job? No, I just worked 14 hours a day. Okay, you kept your day job, so you had some income. Yep. But you did the rest of the time, weekends, night times, which yep. is pretty typical. Yep. Because therefore you didn't require capital as such. You yeah. used your own capital. Exactly. Your own time, your own effort. That's step two. You made it happen. It took you two years. All these fucking people think they can do things in five minutes. They don't realise yeah. it takes a lot of commitment. It takes a long, long time, right? And then, okay, you build your team. That's the next step. Yep. Step three. And step four is you went and raised money. What's it like working for or with? It's fantastic, to be honest. And, and as a founder, I think Jules is demonstrated even in this podcast. Like his vision is absolutely extraordinary and his drive is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Jules uh, I'm, uh, and, and Brian, I'm really impressed with you guys doing. I appreciate you coming in. I love the fucking energy, man, and, uh, and I love this new stuff, this new stuff. And, <laughs> I, wish you, and, and I wish you, you, you guys the best of luck. Thank you. And if anything we can do to help you out and support you, we're there. Well, we okay. are in a raise. So <laughs> I knew you were going to. I thought you might want to raise that. <laughs> uh, Grant Williams, he's the executive producer or EP, what they call as EP at uh, Channel 9 for the uh, current affair, has been there for a million years. Ex copper. Uh, I've got to declare early that he's mates with a lot of my cop mates and um, welcome, Grunner. G'day, Mark. How are you, mate? Good, mate. How, how does this feel to be on the other side of the microphone? Because you're normally sort of conducting the orchestra here. You're normally the EP, the executive producer. You're normally got people shitting their pants about being interviewed by someone at a current affair like Tracy. That's true. That's true. I, I'm actually shitting my pants as we speak because I'm worried that I'm going to be fired any moment for a start. <laughs> how good is this? Um, yeah. Grant uh, Williams on the back <laughs> foot. <laughs> what are you that for? You've got me on the back foot already. Yeah. How did you get involved in current affair or television? How did that come about? I met a bloke called Hal McElroy, who was a big TV producer at the time, and he was making a show called Water Rats on the Harbour involving the water police. And they had an office out on Goat Island. That's where they filmed, filmed the program. The studio was out there. And um, they were looking for a detective from the cops 
to become the police advisor on the show. And I put my hand up for it, went and spoke to him, went on leave without pay from the cops to do it because I thought this is a bit of a rort. I'll probably go and do it for 18 months and then come back to the cops. Got the approval from the commissioner, who was Peter Ryan at the time, the English bloke. Went off to Water Rats, did that on leave without pay for a while, working for Hal McElroy, and then thought, how good's this? How good's this TV caper? Colin Friels was the lead actor at the time. He got cancer. Steve Bisley was brought in as the lead actor. I thought to myself, this show mightn't be long for the world. I will decide what I'm going to do in terms of going back to the cops or not. So I resigned from the cops. I went, I went and did a full-time course at the Australian Film and Television and Radio School as a producer. Uh, sorry, as part of my course at the film school, they sent you to nine. I went down to a current affair and uh, I was aged 30. I went down there for some work experience at, at ACCA and um, I just thought, I reckon I could bullshit my way into this joint. And so I just went my hardest, pretended I knew what I was doing. I was the oldest work experience kid they'd ever seen <laughs> and, uh, and just went out and just had a go, interviewed blokes, went on the road with the camera crews, just did everything like I'd been doing it for months, pretended I knew what I was doing and fudged my way through. And then eventually um, one of the senior blokes, this old character in the office called John Muldrew, he actually pulled the boss aside and just said, look, I've been keeping an eye on this young bloke, this work experience bloke. I think you should grab him. And what unbeknownst to me, a few of the cameramen had also been to the boss and said, mate, this bloke, if he doesn't know what he's doing, he's, he's putting on a fair, fair show, pretending he does. Um, and then next thing they tapped me on the shoulder and they said, look, there's been a heap of redundancies here. Uh, we haven't got any money to, to hire you, but if you want to hang around, you can. So I worked for another six months for nothing and kept working in the pub at night and um, ploughed on there. And, uh, and then, you know, nine or ten years later, I was running the joint. I can't go past quickly asking you about the Packer-Gingell punch-up or whatever that – we probably don't, shouldn't be calling it a punch-up, but – the, the, the scuffle. The scuffle, yeah. Can you, yeah. I mean, out of, just well, out of interest, I mean, what, everybody wants to hear about it. I mean, you, but you were right there. I mean, you're, well, you weren't there on the day, but you, you have a very close connection with both individuals. You know both individuals very well, particularly one of them. Yep. Um, you guys covered it off. Tell me about it. Well, you know, it, it's, I, th- I think, it, look, it's, it's no secret that a lot of us at nine absolutely, you know, have the greatest respect for David Gingell. And and I think you addressed it, you were sort of hinting at it before. There's another good reason why I run or have run the business like it's my own business, because of that bloke. Because he lets you do it. Because he, he lets you do it. Yeah. And he knows, and mate, he'll ring you and he'll kick you in the ass. And you know why you always run it like it's your own business as well with Gingell? Because he watches your product. Mm. He knows your product. And you can't fudge. He's not, he's not ringing you up saying... Uh, Oh, mate, I watched The Current Affair six weeks ago and I thought it was pretty shit. He can tell you what was on last night mm. down to each commercial break, right? But, uh, but look, I think it was one of the more interesting episodes we've had at nine with, with, with the video and, uh, and, and, and the, and the skills that become... The well, well, look, the, the whole thing was, you know, people... You know, it's, it's, been, well, it's been well documented that um, uh, paparazzi were hanging around at James's place with a view that they would try and get shots of Miranda Kerr returning to Sydney from the States with, um, with, with James. And uh, what transpired was that there was a Channel 9 news truck, a, a link truck, parked up the same side street 
innocently because the young bloke who's on call lived in this lived up there. He's just a Bondi resident, right? So James automatically thinks, uh, oh, hang on, they're all over it. Channel 9 sent a truck down here. They're trying to stake out the joint, trying to get Miranda. And um, Ginge knew nothing about it. No one at nine knew anything about it. I was it. with him yeah. now before having he breakfast. Was, yeah, exactly. So he's in the surf. He jumps out. He gets these cranky calls from uh, from James saying, mate, what are you doing? Piss the truck off kind of thing. And he and he had no idea. He had no idea what it was all about. So um, so next thing it's on. So Ginge goes up and waits for him. Now, there were some paparazzi there and they were waiting for uh, Miranda Kerr supposedly to turn up. They didn't realise that... Uh, this bloke in the tracksuit was David Gingell. They just saw him there. So they actually thought they had shots of a hobo attacking James Packer <laughs> is, the, is the reality of it, you know, because he'd been on holidays and he had the big beard and everything and he was in his tracky dacks and whatever. Anyway, so cut a long story short, it ends up in a situation where these a, a huge number of still photos and video is, is made available by paparazzi. And on the, this was on the Sunday afternoon, of course. On the Monday morning, I land in the office and it's on for young and old. And we've got, I've got this paparazzi girl coming into my office and she's got, the, uh, she's got all the stills and all the video. Do you buy from her? How's it work? We could have. You could have. Right. They wanted, they wanted Big Biscuit, obviously. To, to, How much to, are you talking for? Oh, you're, like talking, you're talking 250 grand or thereabouts, Jeez. right? The consensus was that this ain't going to go away. If we bury it, yeah. they're going to be on our hammer forever. So we walked back in. The girl's sitting there with a laptop with all the vision and everything, and I said, no, nah, don't worry about it. Take it to Holt Street. Take it to News Doc. Yeah, yeah. Take it to News Corp. They'll yeah, buy it. Yep, yep. And, uh, we, you know, the discussion was 250 grand. They did. She went straight there. They bought it. We just sat back and wore it. Because the you outcome I mean? was pretty good. I mean, relatively speaking, nothing, I mean, we've all forgotten about it. It's more of a, bit of a funny thing to talk about these days. Yeah. And there was very little collateral damage to Channel 9, no, I think. that's right. And, I mean, you know... Smart get, from a PAPS point of view, coming to you guys first, knowing that, like, you know, that potentially... Potentially the price could be higher. Yeah, because... That's right. I think they got the shock of their lives. I think yeah, the girl yeah. was... Uh, she, she thought I was joking when I came back in. She, she didn't take yeah, me seriously. Yeah, she yeah. was almost pulling the paperwork out after I said, <laughs> don't worry about it. Cash you know or what check, I mean? yeah. Yeah, yeah, cash or check. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so she she really got the shock of her life. But I think that's a, that was a great corporate lesson for me. Great life lesson, and and just be honest. Know, just be honest. Yeah, well, fess up. It's been fantastic to get you in. Like I, I I think that for our listeners to have an opportunity to hear someone speak from the not only from the grindstone, but someone who sort of sees. Uh, the, the rawness of what goes on in this country in terms of, um, you know, what, what what you want to call the current affairs, but just the sort of stuff that you guys produce with day in, day out for, you say, 40 years, in your case, probably the last 10 years, eight years? Yeah, well, I've, I've been the national boss, certainly, for coming up to my eighth year now. Eighth but year. Yeah. And, and there's a great opportunity for people to hear sort of the rawness of what you do. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. You know, I'm just grateful for you giving me the opportunity to come in and, uh, and have a chat about it. Mate, it's awesome. I'm glad you use fantastic content for us. So, thanks. Runner. Good on See you, mate. mate. I've got uh, like pretty heavy hitters here, so big heavy hitters. I've got uh, Joe Hockey, a mate of mine from a long, 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 long time ago, but better known as a treasurer of this great country of ours and uh, now retired. Now, bear in mind, this is a conversational thing, so, you know, if anybody wants to have a crack at Joe or even uh, add to what he's saying. (laughs) Where did that come from? It's all right, Joe. It's all part of the deal. It's all cool, man. I don't know if you remember this, but you and I and another guy had lunch 
maybe 30 years ago, might be 30 years ago. Huh. Uh, it was down in um, East Sydney. It was across the road from Bill and Tony's. And you just started your career as a, well, you didn't just start your career, but you were a young politician and uh, you certainly hadn't reached the heights that you reached today. Let's go back 30 years. Did you ever think to yourself that one day you would be treasurer of this country? No, I thought I'd be prime minister. <laughs> cool. I'm serious. Well, I, I, you've no. got to have ambition. And, uh, you know, I went into politics wanting to serve. I had to have a degree of confidence in my own ability. Uh, I was made a minister, one of the youngest ever ministers, and I had financial services. Where, I remember it. Uh, you remember in 1998, uh, it was a, a whole different ball ballgame. Uh, and uh, as one of the youngest ministers, by someone who didn't, I didn't necessarily share exactly the same political philosophy with. That was John Howard. The fact that he promoted me and gave me a great deal of confidence. And uh, uh, so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd get somewhere if I hung in there long enough uh, and did a good job along the way. And, and it did work that way. But uh, in the end, fate has its hand. Yeah, but you did it. Well, I, and, and, and it's good. But, you know, uh, <clears throat> inscribed uh, in St Paul's Cathedral in London are uh, some Latin words to the effect, if you're looking for a monument, look around you. And the fathers of London said to Sir Christopher Wren, the architect's son, what can we do to pay tribute to your father for this unbelievable cathedral? And uh, he said, look, if you're looking for monuments, look around you. So I never judge it on the title you have because I've seen lots of incompetent people have great shingles that said they were a particular minister or a treasurer or a prime minister. What matters is what you achieve. Mm. I, I had a business called Wizard and uh, I got the first person, Kerry Packer, mm. as an individual. Kerry came in, bought 50%. But you know what really kicked our business off? I bought in a company called Deutsche Asset Management and Deutsche, Deutsche Asset Management in those days represented three of the, Australia's largest super funds, CSS, PSS yeah, and State Super. We sold them to and they put in, they put in $60 million into Wizard. That made the difference because that allowed us then to go off and buy the wholesale business where all the technology sat, which is what turned but, the, our Wizard business into something great. And hang on, Joe. And you, by the way, one of the greatest supporters of yeah. Wizard and Aussie and Rand. Securitisation. But you were. You Absolutely. and the Treasurer at the time, Costello. Yep, yep. You guys in those days used to get into Parliament <laughs> and used to say, and Joe got me big time one time. I've got to tell this story. In 2001, 2001, uh, we, 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 2000 was a tough year. 2001 election, election year, it was a, uh, Howard government was going to go for election and the interest rates had been going up right up until about, uh, kept going up, up, up in this country about 2000. And 2001 looked like it was going to be the first Reserve Bank board meeting in February 2001 where the Reserve Bank is going to reduce interest rates. And uh, we did something. In those days when interest rates were reduced, you passed on the redu reduced interest rate to the consumer in about six weeks. When interest rates went up, you passed it on straight away to the consumer, like 10 days. And, uh, and I got a phone call from Joe Hockey, who was the Minister for Financial Services at the time, and I think financial services came under Treasury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Joe said to me, he said, uh, listen, uh, we're going into Parliament because in those days the government here could actually build your business up for you in, in that they were not scared. They hated the banks. They stood up to the banks and they said to the banks, if you do this, you do that, we're going to uh, rip into you in parliament, and which is what they used to do. And they actually helped business like Wizard and Aussie Rams get up to where we got to, 20% market share. Joe said to me, he said, are you going to pass on the interest rate reduction uh, straight away or 
over a period of six weeks. And I said, well, I don't know about that. And Kerry was my partner and he said, look, <laughs> what I would like to see happen is you to pass on the interest rate quickly. Um, so I, I said, oh, okay, well, I'll get, let me go back to Kerry Packer. I went back to Kerry Packer. He said, well, we're going to go into Parliament shortly. He said, I need an answer. So I went back to Kerry and I said, Kerry, Hockey's rung me up, blah, blah, blah. And Kerry said, listen, son, don't you fuck this up. He said, because every time you pass on interest rate reductions, you know, at a speed, we lose so much per day relative to what we would ordinarily earn. I said to him, okay, I'll make a call on it. So I said to Joe, I can't remember exactly the number of things. I said something like, we'll pass on in 12 days, which then was a big, big change, six weeks. Joe said, no problem. He said, he rings me back and he says, uh, listen, he said, uh, I've, I don't know who he spoke to. I, I think it was Westpac with Dave Morgan. He said, uh, one of the banks is going to do it in 10 days. Can you do better? And I went, fuck, Kerry's thinking that he's going to kill me if I stuff this up. Anyway, I think I went back and said something at nine days. Well, I never know to this day, nor will I know Joe Hockey standing here right now, did you actually speak to a bank? Because we passed on nine days. That changed that government encouragement, Diogo. And it was actually encouragement. Intimidation. intimidation. I would like to call it encouragement, but it was intimidation <laughs> um, because, you, if, because if whoever, whoever did it was going to get announced as someone who did something great, we changed the way interest rates are passed on low reductions and increases from that day on. The banks absolutely were really totally pissed off because it lost tens of millions of dollars for them per month in terms of the amount of time they passed it on. Um, that sort of encouragement was extraordinarily important for organisations like me who were considered a, we were a start-up and then we became a disruptor and we changed but, the way but things happened. It's, it's a great story, Mark. What, what do you say? Because it comes back to innovation, right? Wait up, Joe. Are you bullshitting? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the banks? I never bullshit. Uh, and, and, but, it, but it comes back to... Well, never. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Hockey, uh, you've left a great legacy for this country. I think Thanks, every Australian wishes you the very best in your future. And uh, I hope one day I get to meet you over there in Washington, that fancy house you're going to. <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, mate. With me today in the studio was Todd Sampson. I'm actually thrilled that he's here. You know him from the TV shows, Grew and Planet, Grew and Transfer, and The Project. Like I get asked a lot by young people, what you know, what's my recommendation to help them succeed in business and do I? And it always throws them off. And I say ten minutes in the morning of quiet, and they go, really? How about studying, you know, the digital landscape? And I'm like, not ten minutes in the morning of quiet. So ten minutes of breathing. That's it. Not, doesn't have to be anything special. Doesn't have to be anything unique. Just uh, for a lot of people, count their breaths uh, up, up one, down two, go to ten. When you lose your attention, go back to one again. And keep doing it. And try to, you know, eventually you'll be able to do 10 minutes of that. Which is the basic premise of yoga. Basic premise of, of 3,000 years of, of, you know, tradition. It's funny. It's a basic premise of boxing too. Yeah. Just breathing, breathing, mind relaxing body, your Mind-body body control. And, and a lot of it, unfortunately, for a lot of people have religious associations with it, so they turned off of it immediately. They, but they, they should see it as brain training because it is brain training. And it's just, it does... One of the best skills you could have in business uh, is attention control, the ability to focus. Listen and focus. Because most people are not actually listening. They're not taking the information in. They're waiting to speak. And attention control is an amazing skill. It's the basis of learning. It's, it's the basis of education. But we are really bad at it. It's funny, you because I did, I did an episode on this uh, conversations about, uh, it's just one of those things that was in my mind, uh, about... Most people that I meet who are very successful are very good at promoting the thing that they're very successful at mm. because they're not actually talking to me, they're having a conversation with themselves. And, um, and we all do it. And I'd say you're one of them too. Um, I do it. Um, I continually reinforce 
in my mind, the thing that I'm trying to promote to myself yes. by having conversations with other people mm. when I don't really care whether they're listening or not. I'm actually just practicing all the time mm. what it is I'm trying to prosecute, whatever it is. And I think that's a really important technique to become good at something. Mm. And then we talk about um, you know, the so-called 10,000-hour theory. Mm. I mean, that's probably, which is basically was a, uh, the test came out as an application against uh, musicians, violinists, in fact, in, the, uh, in Berlin. Um, that's an example of, to me, of neuroplasticity mm. is that is the more you train purposefully yep. and the more you meditate on it and practice it because, you know, vi- playing a violin is meditational, mm. the better you become at it. Mm. But I would say on the 10,000 hours, uh, I think a lot of people confuse that to 10,000 hours to be uh, good at, to, to be good at something versus to be an expert. So mm. I, I want to do a show called 10,000 Minutes because I think science has accelerated learning dramatically. What would take 10 years, 10 years ago, yeah, yeah. you can now do in an incredibly short period of time because our knowledge and our preciseness of information has is, is changed and what we, how we understand the brain and how it works and how the connection to the body has changed. So now we have what's referred to as accelerated learning. And for most things, not to become an expert, but you can learn it very, very fast. So meditation, Mark, would be my number one recommendation, my second recommendation, visualization. Well, okay, med- where, where, where do you learn meditation? I mean, uh, what, you can... How do you, how do you become... How do you meditate? You just learn off the internet? I mean, how's it work? Yeah, get it down on an app. I know it yep. sounds very today, uh, but uh, there's plenty of apps. Uh, one I use is Headspace. It's uh, English... Um, um, app. It's really, really good. There's plenty of them. Uh, I'm listening now in my car on a podcast uh, to Tara Brock, who is amazing. She's a, a very famous American meditator and she's got a great... So there's plenty, but it's not complicated. You know, basically, concentrate on your breath, relax your body, sit mm. quietly for 10 minutes in the morning, starting off. Try to count your breath up, down to 10. Do it a couple of times. Is there any science about doing first thing in the morning or is it just convenient, just the best thing? Uh, well, it's at a time when you can be quiet. And it, it, for a lot of people, it's a great way to start the day. Some people use it to help them sleep. And you so don't have to go and join a yoga school. You don't have to levitate. No. This is just something you can do anytime, anywhere on yeah, your own. That's right, on your own. And you know, and it's, it's very good under pressure. So in business, when you're in negotiations and you feel, oh, this is not going well, instead of moving into reactive mode, as most people do, mm. because the, one of the keys to negotiation is never get to positions. So stay at interests and negotiate on interests. As soon as you get to positions where Mark Boris says, I want this, and I'm sure you've done it quite a few times, and this guy goes, I want this. You're dead. You're dead. It's not going to work. You have to stay at interests. Meditation, quiet yourself down and relaxing for a moment. Having the pause before you react to what they say could make, could save you or make you millions of dollars. So there's no point in arm wrestling with the Dalai Lama then. No, there's they, no point in arm wrestling with the Dalai Lama. We all have to accept the, the problem's a problem mm. and then manage our way through it mm. based on the skills we've developed and or other people's skills that they can bring to the party. And I think business people need to... Understand this. this is really important for business people to understand. We've got 2.4 million small business owners in this country, small to medium business owners in the country. Nobody ever talks to them. That's the whole uh, purpose of this show is actually to talk to these guys and bringing someone in like you who's larger than life in all of their minds because they all, all would know who you are, for you to be able to sort of say to them, look, just accept the process mm. and understand the process, uh, sorry, accept the situation and then work your way through it. That's how you survive. So if you're making a big business decision and you're scared and you know it's a big risky decision, do not cave into the first thing that comes, which is don't do it. And there is something comforting in knowing that when faced with risky decisions in business, well over the majority of people will err on the side of conservatism. Well, I don't mind sharing with anyone who's listening to me, but I, I mean, I, 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 I'm like you. I'm, I'm like you're saying. I have fears. I'm, I'm, 
I'm not fearful, not full of fear, but I will ex- admit that I get scared of things that are happening around me because I, especially stuff I can't control. Mm. And I have this view that I just take a view that I'll only think about those things I can control and those things I can't control I won't think about. Yep. My greatest fear is failing my investors. So I have these listed public companies who, where people have put money in, particularly, you know, little investors. To them it's a big investment but you know, small investors. And uh, I don't and, – and they put the money – I'm worried that they will lose their money. Mm. That's, that's my biggest fear in life, failing them. But it's um, also f- – knowing you for a long time what you've done, it's also fuel for you. I mean, that, makes me, that makes you go. Yeah. That makes me work harder. That makes me never give up. That makes me just keep on it. What is yours? Or maybe one of yours? Uh, I've, got, I've got quite a few fears. Uh, my wife, Naomi's one of them. She's pretty full on. She's a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, so I get nervous when she gets angry. Uh, f- failure. So I think coming from uh, you know, a relatively... Uh, not well-off family in Canada. Uh, my father worked in a factory. My mother was a checkout girl at KFC. I've my whole life. I've tried to. I think I've chased this insecurity race. You know, not not. I remember my dad saying to me once. He shook my hand and he was a factory worker. And all I remember with my dad is taking off his boots at night. Like I remember him unlacing his his steel toe boots at night. And I remember once he, he shook my hand and then he, he he turned my hand over and his hand was all full of calluses and it was just a mess. And he said, Todd, use your brain. You don't need to be doing this stuff. And I think I've chased that my whole life. And so I still, and I've had okay success in my life, I still don't see myself that way. I see myself as the kid from that family still trying to, do right. You know? That's a funny thing you say because I'm exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I, I, a lot of people think of lots of things about me, but I still see myself as the kid from West Suburbs of Sydney. Mm. And I, I mean, I'm not, not sure if I'm insecure, but if it's an insecurity thing, but I'm scared that all the things that I have will be taken away from yeah. me. And it's, it's nearly like I don't deserve them. Yeah. And it's not real. Yeah. It's, it's not mine. And in fact, I don't even think of things as mine as such because I didn't grow up in that environment. So yeah, my, people, people, when people play back, when I get most embarrassed is when people do read my CV or my introduction out, if you're doing a speech and I'm listening to it and I'm going, oh, that all just seems so temporary to me. Like yeah, it, yeah. I don't see myself through that lens. I still see myself as struggling to get things that I want to get in my life. And, you know, but when I, when someone else reads your bio back to you, you go, oh, wow, there's a Did lot of stuff there. Yeah. I could sit here and listen to you for hours, but Todd Sampson, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's sort of an honour from my point of view uh, to be able to stand here and uh, interview someone like Ange Postacoglu. Um, Ange Postacoglu um, was born in Athens, is that right, Ange? That's a, absolutely right, Mark. Um, how old were you, were you when you came to Australia? So, we, uh, yeah, we came here when, uh, when I was five and whenever I reflect kind of on my journey, just how much of it has come because of where I've come from, you know, because uh, the old man just... Um, Obviously packed up the bags, uh, came over here for a better life. I, I don't think it was a better life for him because all I can remember him doing is working, working pretty hard, him and my mum. Um, but they obviously came here for a better life, obviously, myself and my sister and uh, came here with no relatives, no friends, didn't speak the language. But I reckon that sort of instinct in my father to sort of go down, take that risky move and go down the road less travel, that's definitely in me. How much of 
your character do you think has contributed to your success as a result of having seen what your parents did growing oh, up? Absolutely. I guess as you get older, you, you, you reflect on, on your own journey. And um, as I said, I, I keep thinking about my dad's decision to come here. And I reckon every major decision I've made in my professional life, sometimes in my personal life, whenever I've had a choice between doing what's safe and doing something that's a little bit risky, a little bit edgy, I've gone down that road. And I reckon that goes back to, like I said, my father making a decision years ago to, to up and take his family to, to a land he, he didn't know. So that, that sort of character trait, I think, is in me. And I think I've done that um, throughout my career. As I said, I, I continue to do it today. It's when I took over the Socceroos, um, even though they qualified for the World Cup, the feeling was we needed to regenerate the team. That means bringing in some younger blokes um, and change the way the team played. So they were, they were great little sort of things for me to tackle because that's what I love doing. Well, they're big decisions too yeah, because I, it could be unpopular sometimes. I love that aspect of it though, mate. I mean, you don't, you don't go into to coaching to be popular, Mark. It never yeah, happens, yeah. mate. Even when you're on top, there's half the world that, that don't rate you. So that's never worried me the whole... I really love that aspect of it, the, the fact that you can come in and make an impact. So well, that's interesting because as a leader, that you're just talking about leadership qualities, you don't go and become, you're not going in for a popularity contest. Absolutely not. I mean, and, uh, you know, anyone who's listening as a business person, you're in the business of coaching soccer or coaching football, the first point you're just making, you're not going in to be popular, you're going in to make a change. And when you make a change, you've got to have courage and risk requires courage, is, is what you're saying. And your father had courage. My father had courage. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to go to, listen, if someone said to me, Mark, Australia's doing it tough, do you want to move to China and start speaking Chinese <laughs> and move some place in China where I can take your whole family with it? I'd actually crap myself. Um, don't know whether I'd have that sort of courage that my dad had and your dad had. That's probably more than you and I'll ever have. Absolutely. Ever. Um, but what you're talking about here is a business leader to take risks requires courage and it, and it definitely requires you to resist popularity. Now, when you made changes to the Socceroos, obviously it was successful because you won the Asia Cup in 2015, a big career. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't successful initially because, you know, whenever you go through change, there's always going to be a little bit of uh, turmoil, a little bit of inconsistency in results, and we certainly had that. Um, and there was a period prior to the Asia Cup where uh, things weren't going well. We hadn't won for a while, and, and that wasn't by design, but I also, at the same time, I was preparing a group of young blokes to get them battle-hardened, yeah? So you prepare for a fight with Danny Green by not picking easy sparring partners, by making it tough for yourself, yeah? So I was doing the same with the young group of players. We played away from home the whole time we were prior to the Asia Cup. I didn't want them to play at home where they'd get the home comforts of a home crowd and good conditions. So we played away. Now, that meant we didn't win a game leading into the to the Asia Cup. Our rankings dropped to 100. But that was – and that wasn't popular and it certainly didn't do me any good um, from an out- – Outsiders perspective. Did you question yourself at any stage? Absolutely not. No, that was a strategy, mate. That was mine. I was looking at the end game, and the end game was winning the Asia Cup. How was I going to prepare this group of players, my staff, to be ready for January? That's okay, you're the thinking. CEO, and you're the CEO of the Socceroos. That's mm. that's why I look at it, right? Yep. I mean, coach, CEO, whatever, same yeah. thing. And you report to who? David Gallup, who's the CEO, and the chairman, Frank Lowy. Okay, so did your yeah. Guys, your bosses, your direct report, do they question you at any stage? Say, hey, what's going on in Andrew? You know, we're not going they, too good in the beginning. Yeah, they don't question me, but I know they'd be they'd be concerned. Absolutely. And and you've got to take them along for the ride, Dave. But this because you sign up for it at the start, as far as I'm concerned. That's that was the strategy. That's why they brought me in. If they didn't want that sort of change and that sort of impact to happen, they probably should have appointed somebody else. Because I was never going to go down that safe road. They knew that. And I think they wanted that. Um, I had dinner last week with Gus Gould on, on, for just, just catch-up thing. 
<coughs> and you explained to me the state of origin. I don't know if you ever follow the state yeah, of origin yeah, that much, yeah. but like Queensland have this sense that when you're, if you're a Queenslander, you always want to play for Queensland. Um, and that's, he reckons that's the reason why Queensland always beat us, beat New South Wales, us being, being New South Welshmen. Um, because in New South Wales, you want to play for your club, then you want to play for your country. In Queensland, you want to do all, but playing for Queensland is the pinnacle. And in order to get that right culture, um, you're, what you're saying to me now is that you're trying to remind them and get into their heads that you, they want to play for Australia, for the Socceroos. And given that some of these players could be playing for, you know, top clubs in Europe, Absolutely. you know, yeah. which is, yeah. by the way, is the pinnacle of all club soccer, is it a difficult thing to get their heads around saying one day I'm playing for uh, Barcelona or the next day I'm playing for the Socceroos? Yeah, no, because the way I describe it to them, you don't actually play for the Socceroos. You are a Socceroo. There's a massive difference there, mate, in any organisation. You know, in, in, all your, in all your companies, I'm sure it's, the most successful ones are not the people who work for you, but who feel that they're part of what you do. Mm. And that's the difference for me. I think that the, I think the best team I've seen espouse a sporting culture in the world are the All Blacks, right? The yeah. All Blacks have been the most successful for a very long time. And it all comes back to, yes, it's about what they do on the field and, and the playing style and, and the ability of the player, but to be an All Black is something special. And that's what I wanted to create with the Socceroos, is to say, that, you know what, you don't play for the Socceroos, you are a Socceroo. That's a whole different set of, those two words change everything in that sentence. Because when you say you are a Socceroo, that means a whole different thing, mate. It's interesting, you've got guys from rugby league like, you know, Sonny Bill Williams, Roger Tuovasa-Shek, they've, you know, gone across the drink, now playing rugby league, settled in Australia, um, you know, bonded to the teams that they, that, that they play with. And they still get quoted in the media week to week saying that eventually they want to be all blacks. They want to go back there and play. And for see, that's interesting. They say, I want to play for New Zealand. Yeah. They say, I want to be an all black. Yeah. Because to be an all black means something separate. Mm. And that's what I want to do with the Socceroos. To say when, when they say, I am a Socceroo, not I play for the Socceroo, there's more meaning to it. And like I said, that's not just for sport. I think that's for any organisation. No, business, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I think once people feel like they're working for you, yeah, you'll get an end result, but nothing remarkable. Once they feel they're part of you, well, that's a whole different ballgame, mate. I think it's a, a, a really complicated psychological mind game that you're going to build your players into, as well as all the skills and all the other fitness and all the other stuff. But that resilience you're going to try and build into these guys is going to be the best journey. I would love to watch this. I'm going to watch this. I, I would love to experience you getting to the top. And I think if anyone can do it, you can do it. Ange Postacoglu, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate it. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Listener.